0: Blog talk radio. Welcome back, you health Renaissance people. OK, today, this is exciting. We're going back into the Louis Pasteur Vos Antoine Bechamp, our Bichamp um, theory. And what this actually means, and let's think about this. We have the germ theory, which is dominant in the media and uh, dominant in most of the medical education. Uh, but not dominant in science. Okay, and, let, and let's go over that. So what we have, um, is disease um, the result of a weakened immune system, or is disease a cause of germs? And you don't even need to think about the immune system. So So let's look at this. What kind of diseases were corrected by just nutrition? This means just getting nutrition. See, when they talk about Oh, the 1918 pandemic, when they talk about the smallpox epidemics, the cholera epidemics, okay? You're looking at ridiculously crowded conditions in the 17 and 1800s and 19, early 1900s, and this is what we're going to explore. So you're talking scurvy, rickets, hypodotrebia, kwashiorkor. all of those diseases were corrected by nutrition, and we, we could talk about a bunch more that strengthen the immune system. Okay, what diseases were corrected without vaccines? Scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, typhus, cholera, tuberculosis. All of these had to do with cleaning up the immune system or the environment. When you look at the diseases vaccines got credit for, um, smallpox. How can can smallpox actually have been eliminated by the vaccine when less than 20% of the population got it? Okay, we know that polio, Um, has been given credit for the vaccine. But why did the oral polio vaccine that we used in the 50s uh, be wiped out? And we're going to talk about this, this talk. Diphtheria. What's the official cause of diphtheria? People living in crowded conditions, unclean, uh, who aren't well-nourished. Okay, so we know that that disease uh, incident can be reduced, okay, based on just the environment. Pertussis. Now it's interesting because the vaccine for pertussis doesn't suppress the symptoms. It only um, it it suppresses the symptoms, but not the transmission. That means you probably have it, but you're not going to be aware that you have, and you can still transmit it. So let's look at the incidence of disease or death. Now I'm going to have a chart tonight, and it's going to be on YouTube and live on Facebook that shows the death rate incidence at the highest death rate measles ever achieved, okay, between 1900 and 1930, you're talking the average death rate, the highest death rate in that time frame was around 12 per 100,000 people. That means that you had an incident of catching this of 0.00012 death rate per 100,000. So this is uh, not even 10%, not even 1%, not even 100%. You're talking 12 per 100,000. So that means that the people that caught measles, 99.9998 um, percent did not die from the measles. So, so what is this? Let's, let's just take a step back. A virus let, does not have the ability to reproduce itself on its own. Um, a virus is not considered a living organism by most. It's simply a well-organized molecular parasite. Now, 45% of your genetic makeup in your DNA is viral. That's right. Your little double-stranded DNA um, is like a little virus hotel. And many viruses can change in response to alterations in the environment. So it's really a way for your your um, body to communicate to its environment. In fact. Uh, the viruses are vital for our ecosystem. They're able to move genetic information between different hosts. Uh, according to the experts, we still do not fully understand how this is influenced and continue to influence the evolution of our species. 45% of your DNA is viral. That means if I sneeze on you or give you a virus, the, the virus has to use your host DNA to replicate. And so it's going to be transferring your part of your DNA in this new viral DNA replicate to another person. This is why viruses, as they go through successive um, exposures, uh, tend to weaken their, their main structure. And they've been using this technology in vaccines for forever. Well, they'll run it through like three or four different um, s- substrates or animals, okay, growth mediums. Um, to weaken the virus to where you can put it in a vaccine. Now the germ theory, um, what I mean, has been around since they discovered germs. Uh, but Theobald Smith built, built a brilliant formula. And imagine a um, mathematical equation where on the top you have the virulence of the pathogen, the number of pathogens, and the opening size, divided by the resistance of hosts. This whole equation equals the severity disease. Now, even though Theobald Smith, and we're talking a pioneer epidemiologist, bacteriologist, pathologist, I mean, this guy was a genius. He knew that the resistance of hosts was a major factor in the severity of the disease. We know that the Lancet, okay, medical journal, um, says that the germ theory is a gross oversimplification because it neglects the host-germ environment complex. It's talking about behavior, social economic determinants. And again, that's going back to the Beecham, Be, Be, um idea, is that this is not just the germ attacking it. And we look at Rudolf Virchow, and this, this is the father of the germ theory. He was saying flies don't cause garbage. What, what he actually said was, if I could live my life over again, I would devote it to proving that germs seek their natural habitat disease tissue rather than being the cause of the disease. Uh, when, when we look at the International Journal of Vaccines and Vaccinations, and they, the, the title of the article, this is a brilliant article, uh, title of the article, Who Had Their Finger on the Magic of Life? Antoine Beauchamp or Louis Pasteur? The article goes on. So does with Beauchamp's um, had the profound voice of his sil- science, not been silenced, much of humankind may have been spared the worst aspects of the infectious or vital stressors of the 20th century. At least we would have understood them much more clearly why we have them. Fortunately, however, Beecham's work has been kept alive by small, successive band of truth-seekers. So <laughs> let's look at this. When you look at the Journal of Emerging Infectious Diseases, And this is from October 2000. It's mind-blowing because the media and the doctors are not telling you this. But this is a study showing that the whooping cough vaccine, the pertussis vaccine, the P part of the DPT, quote, vaccinated adolescents and adults may serve as reservoirs for silent infection and become potential transmitters to unprotected infants. The whole cell vaccine for pertussis is protective only against clinical disease, not against infection. Therefore, even young, recently vaccinated children may serve as reservoirs and potential transmitters of the infection. Oh, that's a bummer. Now let's look at polio. And again, I want you to look at these diseases in relationship to your perception of Beecham's or Pasteur. Now, how deadly was polio? Well, according to the CDC, 99% of everybody recovered completely without symptoms. That's right, 95% will get infected with polio, have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. 4 to 8% will have mild symptoms, such as fatigue, nausea, headache, flu-like symptoms, which resolve completely. So you're talking less than 1% of polio cases resulted in permanent paralysis. And of those that had paralysis, so less than 1% had paralysis, of those, only 5 to 10% died. Okay, so you're looking at this, this is a less than one-tenth of 1% mortality rate. So, that was off the CDC site uh, a few years ago. Well, they changed it. And so, how do you word um, that everybody that got polio before the vaccine, before the vaccine, that 99% of everybody recovered from polio completely? Let's see how the CDC cites words it today. <laughs> um, quote, the polio vaccine protects children by preparing their bodies to fight the polio virus. Almost all, 99 children out of 100 who get all the recommended doses of the inactivated polio vaccine will be protected from polio. End of quote. And I just think it's interesting that that's the quote today, totally different than it was a couple of years ago when I built this original slide. It's giving the same information. 99% of people without the, the polio vaccine will be recover from polio, fine. And what do they say? Now, 99% of children who <laughs> get the vaccine. So it seems like 99% of the people... Whether you get the vaccine or not, you're still going to be protected. Okay, so let's just look at polio. And again, look at it in light of, of Bechamp and Pasteur. Uh, polio is spread through um, infected material, uh, it, it typically content, contact with feces or poop of an infected person. Now, you can get it through a sneeze or a cough, but that is extremely less common. Um, so this, if you wash your hands... Um, if you wash objects that have been touched by kids or people that have poop on their hands, that is how uh, the transmission is. So since people are exposed to oral fecal material, I mean, you know, people don't wash their hands completely and they touch something, 99% of the people that got this infection recovered without any long-term sequelae. Okay, so this Um, Let's go on the cutter incident. Now, the cutter incident had to do with the vaccine designed to protect it. Now, think of this. If you got the vaccine, 99% of the people recovered. If you didn't get the vaccine, 99% of the people recovered. So hopefully that vaccine is 100% um, safe. Well, not really. The cutter incident. Now field trials for the Salk vaccine were started in 1954 and that you're talking 1.8 million kids got the shot or actually got the sugar cube with the drop on it. Now the the advertising was it carries no risk of vaccine associated pol- polio. However it did, okay. In fact, it caused around 400,000 cases Um, In in the U.S., 40,000 cases of polio, 200,000 paralyzed children, and 10 uh, kids killed. So when you're looking at this, severely paralyzed 200 children, okay, and it was, um, you know, 99%. This would have had been 1%. So you're looking at, I mean, just crazy that the vaccine designed to protect kids who 99% of everybody that got polio recovered. Um, so what's the problem with this? Well, the Cutter incident talked about um, how it was it paralyzed their arms that they got. It suffered severe and permanent paralysis, required iron lung breathing, and this is all from getting the vaccine. Uh, well... <clears throat> According, and and this is, again, we're going to vaccine and immunization dangers, delusions, and alternatives, and this is page 55, Uh, cases of polio increased from 1957 to 1958, 50%. From 58 to 59, 80%. Now, the increase of polio after the introduction of the polio vaccine Um, makes sense when we look at the historical aspect of other diseases. We're going to look on more in in our talk today. Um, In fact, in five New England states, cases of polio roughly doubled after the polio vaccine was introduced. Now, they knew that the Cutter incident, so they had to hide it. In fact, Congressman uh, Percy Priest, and this is way back in 1956, ordered a full investigation of the vaccine controversy. Now, they admitted in the previous year, 1955, that the public should be spared of the ordeal of knowledge about controversy because what they said is if word ever got out that the public health service had actually done something damaging to the healthy American people, consequences would be terrible. We felt that no lasting good could come to science or the public if the public health services were discredited. Yeah, so you just hit it. I encourage you to read the book, Smoke and Mirrors and the Disappearance of Polio by Susan Humphreys. I mean, brilliant. We know that FDR, and this is according to the Journal of Medical Biology, uh, they really don't think that he had polio. Um, So what did he have? According to a team of modern doctors who analyze FDR's extensive medical records, assessing the likelihood that FDR had polio, they determined that he had Guillain-Barre syndrome, not polio. Now, this is a common effect of post-vaccination syndrome, but it's literally, it says it on the incident, So it could have been from a yellow fever shot, something that he got. Um, now, we're also seeing non-polio acute flaccid paralysis cases. And again, this is what we're seeing in the vaccinated not the unvaccinated, and, and so in India, we're looking at 47,000 cases um, or more, and this quote from the Hindu Stand Times, because it, since the polio cases are coming from the vaccine and the wild polio cases are less, they're saying that, that this is um, an absolute successful process of vaccinating kids eliminating the why of polio, but the polio caused by the shot is exponentially large. Um, Here's a comment. Quote, I'm super puzzled. There are over 60,000 cases of acute flaccid paralysis. This means that there are a huge number of children paralyzed or partially paralyzed and will be struggling for the rest of their lives. And this is okay as long as the paralysis is caused by something else and not polio? Do these kids get a treatment? Is anyone trying to figure out what's causing all of this, acute flaccid paralysis? Is anyone trying to prevent future cases of this? Bizarre situation, makes no sense at all. So let's look at the science of vaccines. So what you have, you have theory and observation, and this is what what all science has to go through. Um, uh, Theory, so you have a hypothesis. The hypothesis is going to be you come up with something, like injecting an animal protein in a human being will protect them from disease. Cool, that's the theory, that works. Now, the observation is how effective is it? Um, So the theory is you're going to inject antigens, viruses, pathogens, adjuvants, preservatives, and stabilize. The theory of the effect on the body is it's going to create antibodies, prepare your immune system, mount a defense, So you may not get as sick or prevent illness. The observation, now this is real-world data. Um, How does this affect other systems of the body and the immune system? Is that studied? How is the overall health of vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations? Again, that data is really hard to come by. So let's go back to 1884, 1884, and is vaccination scientific? Now, by this time, you're looking at about 80 years of vaccination um, research. Quote, in our scientific research, we have have now advanced one step. Vaccination is the infliction of disease. We conclude, then, that vaccination is not scientific, that it cannot be accurately defined, that it's completely useless for for its assumed purpose, that fortification of the body by disease is a mischievous myth and the sooner the practice is discontinued, the better. It will be better for the health of the community. George S. Gibbons, fellow of the Statistical Society of London. Wow. Okay, so again, let's let's look way back. Now, if you look at Medical Immunology 2005, looking up um, things about, uh, again, Pasteur. And th- back in 1887, this quote came out. And... Think of in today's context, Um, in today's uh, context, if you say anything on the public, on the news, anything about vaccinations, you are not put in a scientific category. You're put in an insane category. Like how dare you, you know, it's like yelling fire in a crowded theater. And this is why social media, everything is being interrupted with ideas. But let's look is history repeating itself, or is the media getting more controlling? Let's look way back in 1887 from Auguste Lutend, In France, one can be an anarchist, a communist, a nihilist, but not an anti-Pastorian. A simple question of science has been made into a question of patriotism. Wow. So if you're against Pasteur... Okay, that is a question of patriotism, not science. (laughs) I mean, uh, uh, figure Pasteur audaciously, he speculated that all microbial diseases could be prevented um, by injecting a small bit of the microbe into the human being. Um, Of course, we now know that it's not quite that simple. Pasteur originally claimed, uh, particularly for bacterial infections, let's look at the original campaigns and you got to figure it didn't take long before a, a number of uh cases of smallpox among the already vaccinated and protected started um and of course the first response is denial and this is what we get from the the medical society that we have today oh oh it it didn't occur the pertussis didn't occur in the vaccinated well okay then it did okay So think of this, what they used to explain this, and this was, uh, and you're talking, there were three different types of vaccines at the time. There was cowpox, um, promoted as pure lymph from the calf, horse grease, which was true and genuine life-preserving food, that that was the advertised, horse grease actually came out of the infected hooves of horses, Um, and horse grease cowpox, there were three different types of vaccines. Uh, in 1823 when Jenner died. And Jenner is one of the men accredited for starting this craziness or, or promoting it. Um, so what they used to explain was the number of punctures was incorrect, that revaccination would have been necessary, or that the lymph was impure, to, to explain how the failed, how it didn't work. Um, now, um, Dr. Hayden in 19 or 1896 1896 uh, get this this quote despite increasing evidence that vaccination with cowpox did not prevent smallpox the practice continued physicians for the first time attended to the healthy 100% of their catchment areas could now be treated instead of only the 10% who contracted smallpox and what <laughs> Dr Hayden said was What Jenner discovered, though hardly original in its general principle, was that it was far better, it was that it pays far better to scare 100% of fools in the world, the vast majority, into buying the vaccine than it does to treat the small minority who really get smallpox and who cannot afford to pay anything. It was indeed a very great discovery, worth thousands of millions, and that's why this kind of blackmail is still kept going. (laughs) <laughs> okay, think of that. Okay, Dr. Hayden uh, in 1896 said, look, you're, you're working on healthy people and instead of the 10 people who couldn't afford to pay you anyway because they were typically poor living in squalid conditions. Uh, let's look in 1885 in Japan, 13 years after compulsory vaccine. Now, I figure before vaccination – The case mortality for smallpox was around 10%. Then, okay, the initiated from 1886 to 1892, 25 million revaccinations were recorded. This resulted in 40,000, well, 38,000 deaths, 156,000 cases of smallpox, and a death rate of 25%. So you're looking before vaccinations, death rate of 10%, after 25%. Then, they reinitiated it and they said, okay, you got to vaccinate every five years. The case mortality went up to 30%. So more vaccines led to more disease. 1905 in the Philippines, over 95% of the population was vaccinated, and then the worst epidemic in the Philippines occurred. Um, quote, and this is from, again, Howard Hay, Congressional Record, uh, 1937. The Philippines suffered the worst attack of smallpox, the worst epidemic, three times over than had ever occurred in history of the islands, and it was almost three times as fatal. The death rate ran as high as 60% in certain areas where formerly it had been 10 to 15%. Um, they, let me read a quote. Again, this is from the Medical Freedom Society. Um, I have thought about this many times of all the insane things we have advocated in medicine, that one of the most insane was to insist on the vaccination of a child or anyone for the prevention of smallpox when, as a matter of fact, we were never able to prove that the vaccination saved one man from smallpox. It is nonsense to think that you could inject pus And it is usually from the pustule end of a dead smallpox victim, and is unthinkable that you can inject this into a little child in any way to improve its health. What is true of vaccination is exactly true of all forms of serum immunization, so-called. If we could, by any means, build up natural resistance to disease through these artificial means, I would applaud it to the echo, but we can't do it. And then we go into the compulsory vaccination which is now common in California. Heck, they're even taking the rights away from medical doctors. Let's look in 1938 in the Lancet Medical Journal. Um, Quote, compulsory vaccination, which had once had the suffrage of the nation, has now hardly a serious supporter. We are ashamed to jettison the idea completely and perhaps afraid that if we did, the accident of some future epidemic might put us in the wrong. We preferred to let compulsory vaccination die a natural death and a relief the general public is not curious enough to demand an inquest. In the meantime, our attention is diverted to other and new forms of immunizations. Okay, and this is from Charles um, Cyril O'Kell from a bacteriological back number. Okay, I mean this out of the Lancet I mean just just incredible so tonight we're going to have a number of quotes from the 1800s, 1900s doctor after doctor after doctor is questioning what happened then we are also going to go in to the first anti-vaccination campaigns um, figure from the 1853 is the early one the earliest one I could find um, and and you're looking in 1902. They had an anti-vaccine virus. Um, and, and listen to this. An association of half-mad, misguided people who write toil and dream of the time when it shall be lawful to remain intact, the pure body. Mother Nature gave us. Sends greeting to... <laughs> I mean, j- they're just talking about how the body is intelligent. Figure in 1907... Uh, They had um, uh, 50 Croydon fathers have gone to prison rather than have their children um, vaccinated or pay um, monetary penalties imposed. That's right. This this, uh, pro-choice movement to stop compulsory vaccination has been going on since the 1850s, um, and we just have to stop it. So, what is the cause? Um, we can go in, and, and tonight we're going to go over the waterborne diseases in Britain. We're going to go over a bunch of things. But how does your body actually work? When you're presented with a pathogen, your body already has the immune system in place. Your mucus production increases to wall off the invaders. You get cough, sneeze, increased mucus production, histamines are released. Then a fever results, then bronchus inflame to rush blood to the area, to, which, which is going to have more of the immune system response. Then you cough and sneeze to eliminate the mucus. Um, diarrhea can result, which is going to alkalinize the system and get rid of any dead pathogens that may have been walled off in the mucus membrane that you inadvertently swallowed. And then you recover. I mean, you figure a fever is so beneficial. And 104 fever, and your fevers are limiting to 106, actually doubles the speed of the immune system. In fact, it's 104 fever for every one degree increase in temperature. The speed of your immune system doubles. Trust your body. Strengthen your immune system. We're going to have all of this and data available tonight live on Facebook, and then it'll be put um, on YouTube in a week trust your body. Look at the history of this. Uh, If our population is sicker than it's ever been, and we have an epidemic of chronic illness and disease, the people in charge and the philosophy of the healthcare givers is completely skewed and inaccurate. This is when you have to take charge of your own health, charge of your family's health, and do your own research. You cannot trust the media, to give you accurate information. This is Dr. John Bergman, your advocate for health. God bless you, and I love you.